Hello everyone, Mandy Friedman here, licensed professional clinical counselor, clinically certified domestic violence counselor, clinically certified trauma professional level two, and the owner of Claremont Mental Health, also the creator of SNAP, Survivors of Narcissistic and Abusive Personalities. We are here today with my brother, Andrew. Hi, Andrew. Hey, I'm Mandy's brother, and that is my qualification for being here. We're gonna talk about group dynamics on the show, HBO's Succession. That's right, Mandy. Today, we're going to be talking about the group dynamics, as you said. If you've been following along with us, you've watched our episodes about individual characters on the show Succession. Now, we're going to fit those together and see how those individuals work together in a group dynamic. Mandy, there are some characters that we haven't introduced yet, though, and you like to refer to those as the sharks. Is that correct? Yes, I like to call them the sharks. It's a nice wildlife metaphor. Uh, we like our wildlife metaphors on this show. And, you know, sharks are the ones that are swimming in the dangerous waters. You know, they're the ones that are the alphas and uh, they're not afraid to go up against something scary uh, and they're not afraid to take risks. So the sharks on this show, for me, are the corporate executives that may not be related to the family but also some other people that are kind of partially in the family a little bit, like say Marsha. I characterize Marsha as a shark. She has her own agenda. She has her own goals that she is trying to move forward. And she's not quite part of the family all at the same time, even though she's married to Logan, she and her stepchildren do not get along at all. So the sharks for me are the people like, Lawrence Yee is someone that we meet in the beginning that they wind up doing a hostile takeover of his company and then he winds up, he's on their board. You see Kendall go in and do this, you know, corporate takeover with Lawrence Yee. Um, another one is Jerry. Jerry is the female um, executive on the team that you see with the blonde hair and winds up hanging out with Roman quite a bit. And then we have Stewie. Stewie works for Sandy. Um, Sandy has a daughter named Sandy, but Stewie's really good friends with Kendall. A couple more I can think of are Frank and Carl. And I know there are many more that we're gonna come across throughout the series. Now, Mandy, as we've been going through the series, we've been talking about one-to-one, -one, like individual dynamics quite a bit. And in this, we're going to talk about group dynamics. So what is the difference between those two? And we'll talk about then how our themes apply. An individual dynamic, meaning one-to-one, -one, uh, it could be an intimate partner relationship. It could be the siblings between each other. It could be, um, you know, one person going to therapy, for example. Right. That's a that's an individual type of approach. You're just focusing on the one person. We start working and looking systemically at group dynamics. Now we're pulling in all the individuals and seeing how they interplay in their system. It's important to mention that narcissistically abusive tactics, traits and manipulative strategies not only exist in those one-to-one -one relationships between say a husband and a wife, they also exist in groups and in systems, in corporations and organizations that as a whole, a system can have a culture 
of being narcissistically abusive. Family systems can be, as a system, narcissistically abusive and toxic and manipulative as a group. And the difference between the two is one is way more complicated than the other. Another difference could be that often the people that struggle with the individual relationships come from a system that caused the issues in the first place that led them to be in those intimate partner relationships later in life. So the difference is one is super, super complicated. The other of the individual is almost an outcome of what happens when you're involved in abusive systems. Would it be uh, safe to say then that a one-to-one -one dynamic that's simple to explain, for example, as you mentioned, uh, say abusive, physically abusive relationship between a, a husband and wife, that that same dynamic may manifest in a group, but because there's so many other things manifesting at the same time with other you know people in the group that that might manifest in a different way or would it manifest in the same way you think well it, it manifests a little bit differently because you have different players involved and more people working together to support and keep that system going if someone wants to change or leave the system they risk being ostracized um, that's i guess similar to being in the individual uh, relationships too is that people don't want to leave because they're afraid that it's going to destroy the relationship well when it's your whole family and not only that they're a famous rich family it's really hard to walk away from something like this so the system the dynamic system keeps people stuck in it one of the things that I find interesting about Succession, too, is because it mixes the family dynamic with the corporate dynamic, it makes it even more complicated. Let's talk about our first theme that we're going to cover today, and that is wildlife metaphors. How are some of those showing up in the group dynamics on this show? Well, just the term sharks, which you know I applied to that group, but that really shows you what we're dealing with here when we just call them the sharks. That in itself is a wildlife metaphor. But one of the first ones we see comes from Marsha when she invites you into the Thanksgiving family dinner, which is the most awkward Thanksgiving ever. She says about Ewan and Logan, you two are a couple of noble stags that won't stop fighting. And that was her way of respecting them as the elder males, the patriarchal figures, and basically making it seem like, you know, it would be natural that you would be bumping heads, you two noble stags. Really, they're just dickheads, assholes. You know, that's not, it's not, yeah. there's no like loveliness to it. They're not old stags, they're just jerks. But they do behave like noble stags that won't give up on what their views are. You know, that they have a way of looking at the world and looking at life. And the other one has a different way and they just cannot meet eye to eye on that. So their their ideals and their virtues and their morals are coming into play. Marsh is using this wildlife metaphor to kiss their ass, which is a form of manipulation as well. Absolutely. It's a complimentary one. It makes them seem like that they, you know, have their wits about them and that they they're noble in their efforts. Noble stags. There's nothing noble about what they're doing, but you're right, though. She's making it a little bit softer for them and trying to make them feel very masculine in that moment. I want to also mention a wildlife metaphor that is maybe my very favorite one in the entire series. 
And this is something that's said by Sandy. Now, Stewie works for Sandy. He is wheeling and dealing with Stewie and Kendall while they're doing this takeover move. And one of the things that Sandy says is, I am a parasite on a parasite. And that might be the most honest thing that is said in the entire series. Because these personalities are parasitic. And this particular type of corporation is a parasite in that it eats up other parasites. For example, Logan's corporation is parasitic. And if he can acquire Logan's corporation, and his that's what his corporation does, is it goes around and eats up these other corporations <laughs> that are also simultaneously parasitic. He just comes right out and says it. And I was like, yeah, I like this, Sandy. He just says it like it is. I'm a parasite on a parasite. And that is absolutely true. One more thing about Stewie, and this is not a, a wildlife metaphor. It's just one of the lines that he uses in season one, episode six. Um, now, Kendall's trying to enlist him again in yet another scheme of getting on board with things. You know, Kendall's trying to uh, appeal to their long-term history of friendship. And Stewie says to him straight out, like, dude, you can't trust me. Don't tell me things that are <laughs> secrets. You know, like he 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 is not pulling any punches when it comes to just being himself and saying, yeah, you probably can't trust me. So don't tell me that. When Kendall is trying to get him on board with another scheme, he says, I am spiritually, emotionally, ethically and morally behind whoever wins. I really feel like that was a demonstration of Stewie's character and and what's going to happen throughout the rest of the show is that he's open to whatever works for him mm -hmm. and he's not afraid to take risks or break laws um he's not afraid to lose relationships he'll do whatever it takes and that's what makes him a shark i mean that's the thing about the sharks is that they know how to play the game they're, they realize where they're swimming they know that there's other sharks around and they're good at navigating that environment. Another one of our themes that we've talked about a little bit is love bombing. How is this showing up in the group dynamics in the show Succession? What's important to know about love bombing is that it has to do with a cycle of abuse that is devaluation and then discard, right? So when we love bomb someone, we're trying to get them into a more malleable state of thinking. That if I'm nice to you and I love bomb you, you're not gonna be mad at me anymore. You might go along with what I want you to do. And Logan is the king of love bombing. We see Logan using love bombing as he discards people that are his traitors, you know, people that don't agree with him, people that are, you know, trying to find back doors around him he will kind of push them away and then he'll reel them back in. You can see the clearly defined abusive cycle, including the love bombing moments when he tries to reel them back in. And that moment when the love bombing doesn't work and then he turns nasty. So he does that over and over again. He will cast someone out and then reel them back in and then punish them and then cast them out, and then reel them back in. When these situations come up, a lot of times they happen in a group as well. That's something that um, Logan likes to do. 
is use the group dynamic against people, meaning I'm not just going to punish you. I'm going to punish you in front of everyone else and everyone's going to know. He uses another typical narcissistically abusive strategy by pitting people against each other and pitting the siblings against each other. He does this throughout the series by planting seeds of doubt and distrust, you know, with his with the siblings, but also with the sharks as well. So what are some other examples of love bombing that we've seen in the show so far? Well, as part of that cycle that I just described of, you know, there's a discard and devalue, there's a love bombing, and it just sort of goes in the circle. Connor actually describes this about his father. He's, he says, dad's philosophy is that you send the weak one away to establish the pecking order. So whoever's giving you trouble, whoever is seeming weak, whoever is falling on their face and not successful, you know, whoever's embarrassing him, you send them away. And then that causes them to have to kind of earn their way back. But Connor knows this about his dad. And love bombing is the tool that's used after the discard to reel the person back in. We need you. We need you now. And you're my number one. And I can't do it without you. Um, and you know, you got to do this for, for your family and whatever he does to bring them back. Now, if you do this, then the future might be bright, right? So we got love bombing, future faking, discard devaluing all happening all at the same time. Now he uses love bombing and future faking and whitewashing or narcissistic amnesia when he draws them back in. So as he's using the love bombing and the future faking to pull them back in, it's under the understanding that we're not talking about the past. That I don't even know what you're mad about. We're not going to discuss that and won't be resolved. So that's that narcissistic amnesia that we see at times. Well, that's pretty cool because that actually wraps a bunch of our themes together, including the next one we want to talk about, which is future faking. The show is called Succession. It's about the succession. It's about the future. And it's about a future that they really, really want for themselves people that are going to be the successors. Logan loves to future fake on that exact topic to control the dynamic, not just with his kids and the family, but with the executives as well, because their futures are all tied up in it too. So they don't know what their future is going to be. He uses that future, the succession, what's going to happen next as one of the biggest manipulative strategies in the entire series is that hopefulness that he instills in people that they now have a better position with him or that they might there might be something in the future for them um, and everyone really is aiming toward that imagined future so future faking excellent strategy very effective one of the first examples of that that we see is is basically the inciting um, incident that kind of starts the whole show. And that is that, you know, of course, Logan has a stroke, but what I'm referring to is his son, Kendall is ready to give his big speech because he's taking over the company, right? He isn't. It's all future faking. Even when he's unconscious and has had a stroke, you know, uh, from the depths of uh, unconsciousness, Logan can still future fake his children. And that's what he does, uh, you know, to start the show out. And that's kind of how we meet Kendall. Earlier, you mentioned that when Logan will push people away, he will use love bombing to bring them back. 
I think a lot of times he's using that to keep the people in place too. So he sent someone away, but he's kept the people in place by love bombing them and letting them think, oh, they're the next you know, person in line, which is future faking as well, right? An important part of the abusive cycle is this deprivation and reward. It's, it's really important to remember here. And it can be deprivation of you know, sleep, food, money. It can be deprivation of affirmation, of, of love, of acceptance. Um, and the abusive cycle, abusers know this. And that's why they use the strategies that they use. Um, I like to say that uh, when you are starving and neglected, if someone tosses you a bone, it tastes like filet mignon. But that's just because you haven't had anything to eat for so long. So you'll accept it and you'll eat it up and go, oh, look, they do love me. They, they, oh, daddy does love me. You will accept the suboptimal, bare minimum basics and fall for it hook, line and sinker over and over. So he alienates them, banishes them, and then they become the magic person. So he'll go find them, bring them back. You see this in all abusive groups and family dynamics. The abusers love to pick you up and drop you and pick you up and drop you. Love bomb, then devalue, then discard. They will also use this as a form of punishment. In other words, if you fall for the love bombing, you better believe there's going to be a punishment coming later. They might act right, then you act right, and you all get back together, but there's going to be a punishment because that took a lot out of them to have to put on that nice face and go and get you and reel you back in. That took an effort out of them. So now it's time for you to be punished. If you reject the love bombing or push for clarity or a shared understanding, in other words, if the target requires the abuser to genuinely take responsibility, you get this Jekyll and Hyde effect. Logan shows us this many times. He does this a lot. So he alienates them. Then they have to either beg for forgiveness and pay a penance, or he finds them in a moment of weakness, reels them in, and then they pay the penance. When these things happen, often they aren't remembered. And I believe that that is a big part of our themes, uh, the theme narcissistic amnesia. How's that kind of manifesting in the group dynamics on succession? I think it manifests, especially in these moments of pushing people away and bringing them back in. Because when there's a moment of conflict, there's always somebody doing something to someone. They're all doing each other dirty. And when we reel the people back in, or now it's time that we got to, you know, circle the wagons and come back together, we all just forget and are supposed to forget that any of it ever happened. Um, so narcissistic amnesia is this way that they're able to make themselves forget the evil deeds and the dirty things that they've done to each other just so they can keep on working as a system. Uh, yeah, no, you're not going to get a true apology. You're not going to get that um, true remorse from the family member at all. Interesting that the cruise debacle, you know, they never really got punished for that, did they? And there really wasn't ever any kind of, uh, you know, explanation or anything like that. There's never any finality. And I find that uh, there's a metatextual thing uh, going on there as well, that that's how most television shows want you to watch them. They don't want you to necessarily remember what happened last season. They're worried about right now. 
And I find that interesting that the show itself has narcissistic amnesia. And, uh, you know, and that's that's extremely metatextual and pretty cool. Now, Mandy, another one of our big themes and an easy one to cover is objectification. How are we seeing some of these things show up in this show, Succession? One aspect I noticed in the dynamics is that as they are socializing and going to events and such, they really need the drapings of an entourage or the drapings of another person. If it's Kendall, he wants to have a beautiful woman on his arm that makes him look good. You know, Roman just has a woman on his arm to, so that it looks like he's a woman on his arm. But, you know, like he also has the drapings of people around him. You'll notice that a lot of the sharks that when they're out in their elements, maybe not necessarily in the workplace setting, they have their little people that are around them as well. But yes, the objectification comes from how they use and abuse and discard people. You know, we have Roman's first girlfriend, how that whole thing went. There was the actress that Kendall was snuggling up to for a second, then he discards her. I mean, people are objects. We can't get any clearer with it. They even have an acronym, not a real person. I mean, that's I didn't make that up. That's in the show. <laughs> so yes, objectification um, for sure. Do you think that sometimes when the characters are calling each other names, that that's a little bit of objectification as well? Yes, and that's a very Machiavellian strategy is to dehumanize your enemy. So objectification works in that sense that people are objects and that allows us to further harm them because we don't care about them. Well, you mentioned something about kind of wearing people like clothing almost, you know, uh, you said draping. And that reminds me of another one of our themes, and that is another one we've mentioned over and over again because you just mentioned three different versions of it and examples, and that's flying monkeys. So, you know, each one of these characters wants to have this entourage so that they can build their little army of flying monkeys, right? Exactly, yes. They need their eyes and their ears. Um, and people that will report back. And then those people that are the flying monkeys, they have their own game that they're playing. They're jockeying for position too. These flying monkeys, the objectification, the narcissistic am amnesia, future faking, all these themes kind of help the you know subject do something. And one of those things is controlling the narrative, right? Controlling the narrative is everything. It is everything. It defines reality in a sense and that's why they're always haggling over reality so frequently but one way that they control the narrative or logan controls the narrative is in ways that do not reveal his weaknesses or his vulnerabilities now they all go out to the desert for this supposed family therapy session that's going to happen they're going to have a retreat with family with family therapy up until this point they've been no contact um, for a little bit of time and they seem actually a lot happier or better just in general because they have been no contact But nevertheless, they show up for the family therapy One of the things we see right away is that Logan is in the pool early in the morning with Marsha He's still recovering from his stroke and we can see on his back all these scars it looks like he had been beaten 
over and over again throughout his childhood, most likely whipped and beaten. And this is not something that he shows anyone. In fact, the children believe that he can't swim. They don't even know that he can swim. We see him swimming in season one as he recovers from the stroke, his back covered in scars. And that shows that he was clearly severely abused himself. Guess what? We already knew that. I didn't even have to see those scars. I could have told you that because that's that's what creates a person like this is he doesn't want anyone to see the scars because it would be far too vulnerable for him. So he lets them believe that he doesn't know how to swim instead of letting them know the truth about his own history. Now, Marsha is allowed to see the scars and notice how she kept him on lockdown after his stroke, you know, and remember how he got real creepy with Shiv in that moment. Yes. Well, Marsha would have known that was going on. Marsha knew that he was not in a very dignified state and that he would die before he would want people to see him that way. Well, we see that in this example of the pool. Now, Marsha protecting Logan also is like a double-edged sword because she's protecting her investment. She's protecting her money. She's not just protecting a person, which she doesn't really care that much about him as far as that goes, but she's a shareholder. And there's all kinds of shenanigans where in this like, you know, state that he's in, she's trying to get him to get certain papers signed and all kinds of stuff. So, you know, I think that's uh, herself controlling her own narrative right there. Exactly. I mean, she's a shark. So yeah. If, if, if Logan's successful, then she's more likely to get what she wants. If people leave Logan alone and protect him, then she's protected. And yeah, so her future and successful financial future is tied to Logan, his health, his relationship with his kids. And she has maneuvered herself in a way that puts her in the best position possible. Now, we mentioned that they all came together to do this family therapy in the desert. And this family therapist shows up. And one of the first things that happens is they get together and Logan is pretending to participate in it. And he just says the same line over and over again. I tried my best. Everything I've done is for my kids. You know, I, you know, um, I do everything for my children and I'm Word sorry. Salad. What? Word salad. Yeah, word salad. Yes. Yeah. Word salad. Exactly. He's just kind of, you know, got this script that he says over and over again. And now they're putting two and two together. Okay. We're not actually here for their family therapy. The kids start pointing it out. And the therapist says, you know what? Let's take a break and let's start again tomorrow. We'll, we'll dig in again tomorrow. And um, he says, let's all go for a swim. And I think at that point is when somebody said, oh, dad can't swim. So what does he do? The family therapist is he jumps, dives headfirst into the shallow water, which also knocks his teeth out and sends him on his way. And I could not help as a therapist seeing the symbolism here where this man really believes that he's going to do a deep dive with this family, that they're going to go deep and they're going to get to those core issues, but he doesn't know who he's actually dealing with. They are going to be shallow to the point of violence. They're going to be shallow to the point that makes you shut up and knocks your teeth out and sends you on your merry way. They're not going to get deep. And if you try to go there, you might get hurt. I think that was incredible analysis, and I really enjoyed that. Watching the show 
it's these kind of subtle things that sometimes wash over you the first time you watch them. But for someone like you, they poke you right in the eye, um, hopefully not, you know, in a violent way. But uh, <laughs> next, Mandy, we want to talk about our next theme, which is transactional relationships, which shows up all over the show in complicated and sometimes very simple forms. What are some examples of this one? It's really that scene of them going to the family therapy that brought up the transactional aspect to me because the dad, Logan, fully expected for them to stand for the photos. He fully expected for them to do him a favor and just stand for the photo. In therapy, when I am discussing narcissistically abusive relationships or family systems, I talk about the glossy, the glossy photo. A narcissistically abusive family system or a family that is deeply affected by a narcissist has to abide by the glossy photo and what it looks like to the outside world. And what is happening here is as a transaction, Logan is pretending like he's doing family therapy and making an effort with his relationship with his children, but in return, he has a big ask, and that's can we all just have some narcissistic amnesia here and smile for that glossy photo and make everyone think that everything's okay. And that's a transaction. Even though he didn't follow through with his end of the deal, of actually genuinely engaging in any therapy. It was a full on trick to get them out there. He still thought it would be enough to get them to pose. We could surely come up with many, many other examples of transactional relationships. It's very easy to spot them in the show. The whole show is based on one giant transactional relationship between whoever might succeed Logan and Logan himself. So um, that one's easy. Another one that we see quite a bit of throughout the show is callousness and cruelty. We've seen a little bit of that already, but what are some examples that come to mind when you think about the group dynamics? In season one, episode two, Roman and Kendall are scheming. Um, they're talking about that corporate takeover, that dad has had a stroke. What are we going to do? And what Roman says to Kendall really just sums up the viciousness in this family dynamic. Roman says to Kendall, the only way he will respect you is if you try to destroy him, because in your position, that's exactly what he would try to do. That's sad and scary. You wanna earn the respect of your father, you have to go for the jugular, because if he was in your position, that's what he would do to you. That reminds me of when Greg comes to Logan and says, Tom's abusive, and Logan's like, oh, hmm, glad to hear this. Or when Greg goes to Kendall and says, I kept some of those documents, and Kendall goes, oh, I'm impressed by this. Callousness and cruelty is a love language. This is how we operate, and you just better be okay with it, that we are going to be as mean as possible to you. And that if you want respect, you have to be able to dish it out. You got to be cruel and mean back. And then that's how we will eventually respect you. That's this is our family culture. I thought it was really cruel the way that Logan spoke to Kendall when he woke up from his stroke and said, you're a fucking idiot. That was cruel. It was callous. It was also devaluation at the same time. 
Kendall thought that he had saved the company. Kendall thought that he had done a favor and he had big the, been the big man and that his dad would be proud of him. I mean, he genuinely felt good about the work he had done. And he's like, don't worry, dad, I've got us. And <laughs> that is not at all what Logan thinks. And you can just see Kendall turn into a little boy again, just being hurt that, you know, his dad doesn't respect him or care about him or think about him or think very highly of him at all. But that was definitely, I think, cruel and callous. Also an example of being discarded and devalued in a way. It's like, you're nothing. You're an idiot. Yeah, you think you're hot shit, but you are not. Logan also uses our last theme, which is coercive control in the group dynamic. And I would argue that the entire group exists because of coercive control. And that dynamic is basically the surrounding theme that kind of, you know, encapsulates all these themes we've been talking about. And I would say one of the most overt and direct forms of coercive control is the knowledge that if you don't go along with it, you're out. You are ostracized. You're cut off. You're humiliated. You're nothing. You're less than us now. You're not a part of things. That's coercive control too. When the threat of ostracization is in play, that people are going to want to stick around like, wait a second. So if I don't do it your way, that means we can't be a family anymore and that I'm not invited to things. That's coercive control. Or churches, for example, that create these kind of um, paths or rules that you have to go by. But if you don't, then you're not included in the church or you can't attend your children's wedding because you're not a member of the church and they're getting married in the church. You know, there's there's coercive control doesn't just have to be power over your money and your resources and over your mind. It can also just be the fear of being cast out. And that's really what a lot of them are afraid of. They know they're rich. They know that they'll be fine financially, but they don't want to be cast out of the family. But the family is a monster in itself. They want to be a part of something that is actually really harmful to them and that have turned them into the assholes that they are today, but they still need it. They still want it because it is hardwired in us to seek the approval and the affection and acceptance of our parents. And they want nothing more than for Logan to look at them and genuinely be proud of them. And they're scurrying around in this pathetic way to try to win that. And everyone around them sees it. The sharks see it. We all see it. And it's, it's quite sad. But the coercive control comes from not only the being ostracized, but that daddy's going to be mad. And that's the worst thing ever is if daddy's mad. And how do we know that? Well, because when daddy's mad, here's all the terrible things that happen. This is a good reason and a great example of why abuse and trauma is uh, looked at as a cycle because uh, you know, this is a perfect example of the cycle is Logan pushes his children away in order that they want to be near him. But as soon as they're near him, he pushes them away again. It's a shame, but uh, is there any way to heal? I mean, I know that identifying these themes is a big part so that you can see these things when they happen in your life. But 
is you know is separating yourself from a group dynamic that that is uh, harmful to you maybe the first step in healing 100 percent, and we see it actually twice um, in the series where the kids have been able to gain space from the situation they're doing their own things and they're maintaining their sibling relationships outside of their father and you notice they're joking more they're happier more they're more light-hearted because abusive relationships affect our brain it affects the system of the brain that is your threat sensing system the amygdala and the survival mechanisms of the brain and when someone has abused you throughout the course of your life your brain pairs with that person almost like a bluetooth and you don't even realize it. it's called neuroception and every time that person is around you go on some form of alert or defense mechanism just from them being in the room just from them texting you or a smell that reminds you of them your uh, alert system goes off and that also um, affects our ability to function rationally and logically and by gaining space from that, we can allow our brains to kind of recalibrate and locate our own perceptions again and figure out what's a threat and what isn't a threat because we override the threat over and over again. Look at who they're hanging out with. They're all threatening dangerous people. They're all, they're all terrible evil people for the most part and they override any sense of maybe this isn't okay, maybe this is dangerous, maybe that's a bad person if they even have that to begin with, right? But for regular old normal people, yeah, you have to get away from it as much as possible. Now we mentioned no contact, but there's also low contact when you don't have a choice. But getting away from it allows your brain to start healing. It helps you become more emotionally regulated when you take space away from those toxic people and those toxic behaviors. I wanna wrap up the episode with one more really interesting metaphor that's a wildlife metaphor that really sums up this family dynamic. We're talking about uh, the Thanksgiving where Marsha invites you in. Logan makes the comment to Kendall, everybody has their own things going on, including Marsha. Because remember, Marsha invited Kendall over to have dinner with his father, but his father didn't know he was even coming. No one knew that Ewan was coming. Marsh is making her own moves. So when Logan sees Kendall there and he's like, oh, did, you know, Marsh invite you? And Kendall's like, yeah. He's like, well, she's making her own moves too. She's doing those things. And everyone has their own games going on. She invites Logan's brother Ewan to the Thanksgiving dinner. And Ewan's quote is this, and this is what we will end with for season one of Succession. This whole family is a nest of vipers. They'll wrap themselves around you and they'll suffocate you. All right. Well, thanks so much for joining <laughs> us. <laughs> and, you know, the succession, the family, uh, you know, of the Roy's is the snake eating its own tail, you know, and uh, of course that wraps it up nicely. Mandy, what is our next episode going to be about? Our next episode, we are going to start with season two, finally. And we'll start with Kendall because the season one ended with Kendall, um, you know, having had that thing happen at the sister's wedding with the, the waiter. And then he goes away. At that point, he gets whisked away because they are able to cover up what happened. He gets whisked away 
to a sanctuary where he's going to have plenty of time to recoup and relax and just get away from all the things that had just happened. And I'm sure that he'll have this lengthy, enjoyable stay there so he can get his head on straight. I can't wait to talk about how Kendall is going to heal from this toxic group dynamic. But uh, it's been fun to talk about season one. I'm fired up to get into season two. So we'll talk to you guys soon. Thank you all for watching or listening. Goodbye.